Hi, my name is Peter Dale. Hi, I am Clara Irene Reyes. Hi, this is Juan Manuel Rodriguez, a.k.a. Juanma. And you're listening to the Bogota Writers Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Bogota Writers Group Podcast, new short fiction from the capital of Colombia. I'm your host, Delaney Turner. On today's episode, Lauren Biggs reads her story, The Arrival. Lauren moved to Bogota from Brooklyn two years ago to teach high school English. She's greatly inspired by the work of Virginia Woolf, Chimamanda Adichie, and Morgan Parker. And now, The Arrival. Aminata sighed in relief. Pressing the millet grains through her fingers, she saw that it was finally ready. She had been pounding for about an hour, singing to keep her spirits up, but she was exhausted. The men were sitting in the shade drinking tea. She walked over and Foblin poured her the dregs of third round tea. Bitter caffeine and jolt of sugar. Boblin and Sally played nearby, Boblin struggling to tie a gourd to an old piece of wood to construct a xylophone. Sally watched attentively, Boblin her teacher. Sally was four and Boblin six. Ina, strapped to Aminata's back now, had just turned seven months. Aminata had been lucky. Three healthy children, no miscarriages. She attributed this to her diet. Aminata knew the leaves in the bush that made the best sauce, and ever since Foblin's brother had started sending them money from Bamako every month or two, Foblin had started buying meat for the family. Aminata did not want any more children. What she wanted was to start selling frou-frou at the market on Saturdays so she could make money. Money to buy new clothes and school books for her children, the fresh milk that Boblin and Sally loved, and even new clothes for herself. She did not like picking over the used clothes Fablin brought them from time to time, and she did not like drinking only third-round tea. Every Saturday morning, Fablin went to the market, and Aminata stayed at home to prepare lunch. On rare occasions when Foblin went away, she would go to the market and Foblin's brother's wife would prepare the family's lunch on her own. The market enchanted Aminata. As she walked down the crowded alleys, she stopped every five minutes to greet an old friend or a distant relative. She reveled in bargaining with the woman hawking vegetables and received a special thrill from knowing she had gotten the best price possible. Every time she went, she would buy frou-frou from a different vendor, letting the small balls of fried dough dissolve slowly in her mouth in order to discern which spices the cook had used. She felt confident that her frou-frou were the best. As Aminata sat with Fablin and the other men, luxuriating in the approaching midday heat, a woman entered the compound. Aminata could tell the woman was young, no more than 26, but she had a threadbare look to her and creases on her face that should not have been there. Next to the woman, a skinny toddler waddled slowly. Fablin began greeting the woman. Ah, Yayi, you made it. How are you? How was your journey? 
How is your father? How is your mother? The woman responded with calm acquiescence, the faintest hint of a smirk creeping into the corners of her mouth. When the greetings were completed, Fablin showed her to the new room he had built adjacent to Aminata's room. Aminata had believed the room would be used to store the tea, sugar, cigarettes, and soap that Fablin occasionally sold to the other men in the village. As Aminata watched Yayi and her son settle into the room, she knew immediately what had happened. Fablin had taken another wife. Aminata had always wondered when he would. Most of the men in the village had two or three wives. She was lucky to have been chosen as a first wife, which had surely only happened because of her father's status as a deputy of the village chief. Aminata's heart sank. Although when they married, Fablin had been a stranger to her, over the years she had come to love him. He was loud and funny. At night, he gossiped and told intricate stories of his adventures at the market. He made her laugh. She put in long hours doing his laundry, preparing his meals, and tending his garden. But he never hit her, and even after three children, he continued to tease her like they were teenagers. Aminata retreated to her room, forcing her mind to adjust to her new reality. The next morning, Fablin left the compound before dawn to go work in the fields. Aminata rose and started pulling water from the well for the day's laundry. Yagi rose hours later, when Aminata was finishing hanging the clothes up to dry. She sat in Fablin's chair and watched Aminata. How was your night? Yagi asked. Peace only, Aminata said quickly, loudly. Is there anything to eat? Aminata looked at her. She looked skinny. Aminata wondered if her father treated her properly. She wondered why Fablin had been hiding a woman who had already had his child. The porridge is gone. You'll have to wait for lunch. Aminata knew it was her job to take Yayi under her wing, to train her in the chores of the household, to introduce her to everyone. For some first wives, gaining a second wife meant gaining a slave. They looked forward to this moment as the moment when their true authority could be realized. Instead, every time Aminata looked at Yayi, she had to blink her eyes to hold back tears. That night, Yayi sat for the first time with the woman of the compound, Fablin's mother Babo, his father's second wife Nyakruni, the wife of his youngest brother, and the two wives of his middle brother. Babo and Nyakuruni peppered Yayi with questions, teasing her about how skinny she was and why she hadn't come to live with them sooner. Yayi smiled at their interrogation, saying only that her father had wanted her to stay at home to help with the harvest. Fablin needs to buy you some proper clothes now that you are a new wife. Look at what she's wearing. Babo pointed at the tattered fabric wrapped around her waist and the t-shirt with holes in the back from being washed too many times. Yayi said nothing. Babo placed an empty basket, a sifter, and a basket of unsifted millet in front of Yayi. Let's go! You've been sitting around all day doing nothing! 
Yagi quickly and methodically toggled the sifter from side to side, letting the fine grains of millet fall into the basket like sand. Aminata watched Yagi's toned biceps shine in the moonlight. Nyakruni turned on the radio and began to dance, clapping her hands to the beat and laughing. That Saturday, Aminata decided to go to the market. This would be the first time that she would go on the same day as Fablin. She figured that now that Yagi was here, she could prepare Fablin's lunch. Aminata still felt sad about Yagi's arrival, especially at nighttime. It had been five days and Fablin had not visited her at night. She missed the heaviness of his body and the feeling that they communicated in a special language that no one else could understand. However, Aminata was a practical woman. That was how her father had raised her. Because Fablin rode his motorcycle to the market and Aminata walked, she arrived much later than he did. When he saw her there, he looked shocked. Ami, what are you doing here? I'm here to sell frou-frou. Who is making lunch? Yayi. Yayi? She just arrived. You have to give the girl a rest. She can't start all the housework right away. Why not? You brought her to our house. She should work for it. Ami, this is not good. Fablin walked back to his friends and immediately started gesticulating, complaining about his crazy wife. That day, business was good. Not amazing, but considering it was her first time at the market selling frou-frou, Aminata was satisfied with the number of customers who chose her. She was connected, hardworking, and reliable. People knew her as a woman who was always ready to do a favor for a friend, the one who started her work earliest in the morning and finished the latest at night. She had built up a stockpile of goodwill in the community, and now she was cashing it in. That night, Aminata sat apart from the woman, counting her money. She had completed fourth grade, unusual for the woman in her village, and she proceeded to record her calculations in a children's notebook with a picture of a dolphin on the cover. Ami, how much did you make today? Fablin shouted at her from across the courtyard. 20,000. Give me 5,000. I need to buy tea and sugar. No. Fablin walked over and tried to grab the money from her hand. At first, he was smiling. Then he saw the seriousness on her face. They struggled back and forth before Fablin successfully pried it from her hands. Aminata walked into her room and shut the door. The next morning when Aminata rose, Yayi was in the courtyard stirring a cauldron of porridge over the fire. How was your night, Yayi said, her eyes remaining on the porridge. Peace only. Aminata sat in Fablin's chair and they remained in silence, listening to the crackle of the fire and the bubbling of the porridge. Aminata, I want to help you. Aminata clucked her tongue and said nothing. Fablin should not take your money. It's not right. He is my husband. He can do what he wants. What is there for me to do? In my village, there was an association. 
The woman put their money together and they went to a bank. The bank will take your money and make more money. If you put your money in the bank, your husband cannot get it. Who else will do this with me? And what will Fablin do if he finds out? The men need us. If all the women in the village do it together, there is nothing they can do. Aminata gazed up at the mango tree above her. The tree looked heavy. The mangoes were almost ripe. Okay, we will start a woman's association. The words felt strange and new in Aminata's mouth. Yagi poured the steaming porridge into bowls and brought Aminata the first one. That was The Arrival by Lauren Biggs. Now we're going to hear from our fellow members to hear what they thought about it. We're going to first hear from Peter, and I'm going to remind everybody that they get three minutes to give their initial feedback. Lauren will speak, and then we'll have some back and forth. So Peter, let's hear what you thought. Yeah, this story, The Arrival, Lauren, I really enjoyed this. One of the key things is the place. Uh, this is a very different place from where we normally are in our stories because we're based in Bogota, we have our backgrounds, and suddenly we get Africa. So this is a pleasant change, and it seems believable. I've not been there, but it seems it seems very real, and the, the detail of the story from the beginning to the end is very important in that. So we really get a sense of, of the place. I had to look it up to find out where it was. Mali, apparently. And we have this central character. So I think it's important in the story that the main character comes in at the beginning. So we, we it's clearly through her point of view. And the writing, it's kind of matter of fact, realistic, simple. And that's, I think we get the character through the style of the writing. And this is a woman who's living in her reality. She accepts this reality. To us, from the Western point of view, it's kind of shocking some of the things that we see but it seems that this is normal for her. So we kind of start to accept her world. It's a feminist story, and I think as a man listening to it, sometimes you get kind of over-the-top feminism that you kind of feel attacked. And this is in a different context. So it's a contact as a very macho society where there's a particularly shocking thing that's told in a matter-of-fact way where she walks to the market and he goes on a motorbike and you think, what's this? And, but that, that's the reality of her world. So the clever thing here is that, yeah, it's a feminist story, but it's, it's within the limited context. So they're very practical women. So they've got twist at the end or possible future at the end that's within the limits of how they live. So it's positive, it's believable, and you think, yeah, she's going somewhere. And I think it's all summed up there's a lovely detail at the end where we have this, I think that's a key phrase in the whole story, where we've got the mango tree, up, gazed up at the mango tree above her, the tree looked heavy, the mangoes were almost ripe. So this image is a key part because we've got the, the ripe, it could be the money she's going to make, it's the children that she's got, it's the future. So it's rather than saying it, we've got it in the image. Just finally, just a couple of things like constructive criticism. I love spotting the cliches, so I would say Aminata's heart sank. I wouldn't use that one because that's a, that is a cliche. And perhaps just as a suggestion is Yai coming as a second wife. Uh, perhaps not say it. Just let us find out in over the next couple of paragraphs without her 
seeing it, then it'd be a bit more of a shock to us, or the reader finds out what's happening without hearing it directly. All right, Wanma, if you heard the bell, that means time is up for your initial feedback. Wanma, we're going to hear from you next. First of all, uh, one thing that I re- really drew me into the story was the character's name. I mean, I think that Aminata is such a beautiful name, and the other, the other names are so soundful. So I really enjoyed that from the from the beginning. You you sense the like the gender issue in the story. Like for example, Aminata did not want any more children. And she wants to start selling fruit fruit to make money to buy new clothes and school books for her children. I, I really enjoy the setting. And I think that at some point in my life, I must try fruit fruit. I like the way of presenting the other wife when the narrator says she knew immediately what had happened. Fablin had taken another wife, which explains like the title of the story. I like the, the short phrases and answers like the piece only are great because even though they, they are in English, you kind of feel that it's a dialect that they are talking. So that's really nice. I like the way you describe uh, Aminata's humble character and how she analyzes her situation and the one of others. As for example, when she looks at Jaji and she had to blink to hold back tears. I really enjoyed how those scenes show us Aminata's character. Another phrase is like, for example, this one, Aminata watched Jaji's toned biceps shine in the moonlight. I really like that powerful image. And for example, this one, she proceeded to record her calculation in a children's notebook with a picture of a dolphin on the cover. I mean, those are really simple things. I think that the ending was a little bit rushed, uh, but maybe that's the problem with short stories because if you don't try to contain them, you end up writing a novel. So for example, in this one, I sense that the conflict was arriving of the other wives right but then it shows all the things about the saving money in the bank and so that was like a huge conflict and i wanted to know how they were going to resolve that but the story ended just right in that point thanks one more clara su opinion your opinion thank you i really love the story i really like the tone the pace and most of all, I, I love the characters, the women characters, because as a woman, maybe you can identify with them. You know, the fact that Aminanta planned her life carefully, the fact that she took care of herself, the fact that she was careful about what she ate so she wouldn't have any miscarriages, the fact that she wasn't happy with having to take the old clothes that her husband brought to, to fix them up. It seemed like a very smart woman and, and that she, she took her life in her hands to make things better for herself and her family. She loved her husband and she took care of him, but when he was bringing this new woman in, she kind of wondered, you know, and, and that's important, even though it's part of the culture. I like Jaji too, of course. When she arrived, um, I was, I suppose, like many readers, not very happy for Aminanta because, you know, you have so much love for this woman or you somehow feel what she feels. But in the end, I like the end because she was not the woman who we would thought she would be, somebody who would interfere, but quite the opposite, somebody who would help not only Aminanta, but the other women. And the fact that she asked to um, form an association of women 
that could together work for their own for their benefit. That was beautiful. I I really really liked the story. I didn't know that it was set in Mali. I I knew that it was set somewhere else, as Peter said, not our usual surroundings or environment, not what we're used to. But of course, it seemed like any village in many parts of the world, you know, would have this kind of setup. Unfortunately, this is something that is so real. You know, uh, women having to serve their husbands and not having to think about themselves as special human beings too. I like the title. I like to analyze the title before I read the story because you wonder the arrival, what kind of arrival is it going to be, you know? And then of course, when you find out Jaji is arriving, you have this negative feeling, but then at the end, you have this very positive feeling of well-being for everybody. So thank you for this beautiful story, Lauren. Okay, Lauren, it's now it is time for the author to respond, and let's hear from Lauren. Go ahead. So thank you, everyone, for your comments. I wanted to write this because when I lived in Mali, I think I had this stereotype about arranged marriage and polygamy, that it was something very negative, but I wanted to show that within this culture, you have loving marriages and you have very strong women, which I think in the West is something we don't often understand. I'm really interested in Peter's comments that you said, as a man, you feel attacked. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> with this story? But not with this one, because the, the guy... Yeah, he's not a bad well, guy. Well, I wanted Foblin to be likable. Yeah. So he was likable for you? Yeah, and he, he obviously has to... Well, snatching the money, that is when that's the <laughs> negative side. Yeah, he's not perfect. So I think you, that's good as well. He's not goody-goody, but he's not beating her up. But right, I would, like, he, I think he and Aminata genuinely love each other. Like, I wanted that to, to come across. And I wanted, I wanted him to be a, a complex character who could love his wife, but is still in this culture where he's obviously going along with certain expectations of the man getting ownership of the woman's money, which is the way he was raised. So I didn't I didn't want it to be an attack on him. I wanted it to be more, you know, matter of fact about this situation and the fact that everyone in the story has some complexity in them is what I'm hoping for. I, I always appreciate, Peter, your cliche <laughs> lookout. So that is definitely a good point. And I also like the idea of showing and not telling that Yayi is the second wife. I'm not sure exactly how I would do that. I think it might be a little hard, but I think that's a really nice idea. Wanma, the last time we discussed this story, I remember you distinctly saying you didn't like the biceps image. And now you do, so that that shows that you need to read the story twice to truly appreciate it. No, but I, I didn't remember the, the image. Did I say back then? Did I say? Yeah, you were like, shape? "Oh, this is so weird. Like, why? Yeah. Why would her biceps be shining?" No. I yeah, don't, you I, say I that. don't remember that. But but, but I'm glad that it won you over yeah. eventually. No, yeah. and every time I mean, text touch you in different ways, in different. Times of your life, so. 
Not so. that you're older and wiser. Yeah. You've seen more female now I biceps. Like, now I like the moonshiny woman biceps. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, I think, Claude, I think it's also interesting to see how different people read the story. And it makes sense that you also, as like a mother and whatnot, you have a certain identification with the characters that people coming from different walks of life are going to react differently to to the characters. So I always enjoy hearing that. Yeah, I think it, the fact that you uh, lived there for two years gives you an insight into what's happening. Because it's easy for us from a different culture to, to judge these cultures but you were within it so you understand it better so I think if you're writing a story from that experience it really helps because it's not just cliches not well, sorry to use that word again but it's not just you know the bad guy you know it's how, how terrible this guy has three wives or two wives whatever but you kind of understand how it works and, and the women can be strong within that within mm. that system what what uh, what uh, shocked me more was not that he took the money, but the two comments in the story about uh, he didn't beat her up or he didn't hit her. And then when the uh, when Jaji arrived and she wondered, does her father mistreat her or does her father treat her properly? So it gives a negative image of the men, uh, how they treat their wives. I mean, it's very subtle, but it's there. I mean, the second wife, I wasn't so shocked about that. I was more shocked to read in between the lines that men hit their women. Oh, you know, I love him, he makes me laugh, he doesn't hit me. And then Jaji arriving so skinny, and I mean, they're wondering why she's so skinny, maybe her father doesn't treat her well. That's what shocked me as a woman, you know. Yeah, to come back to Peter's comment, one of the concerns I had writing the story is there's a lot of criticism of white writers writing people of color, and especially in the U.S., like African-American characters. I mean, this is a little different because they're African characters, so I think the politics of it are a little different, but I was a little concerned with me as, like, a white American woman writing these Black Malian characters, but I don't know. I spoke with some different people about it, and they were saying, well, you live there for two years. That kind of gives you this authenticity, but I still feel a little uncomfortable with it. Yeah, it's very hard to... Yeah, you're doing it from her point of view, but you're very different from her. Yeah. You, you can't pick up in two years. You can't make yourself her. So, yeah, it's believable to us, but obviously it would be have to be a Malian writer to, to really get into the get into someone's shoes. To, to, it'd be interesting to hear I was that woman speaking, right. giving yeah. her yeah. an account of yeah. what, like that. what feedback you would get from somebody from that culture. Mm -hmm. I think that it would be nice if you put like more phrases of the, the one like peace only, but also in the original language, I mean, because that really attracts the attention. I mean, like to read, even though you don't know how to pronounce it, it really can get more you the, the, the feeling of the place. And I, I think that there are like a lot of short phrases in that modern language, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that was The Arrival by Lauren Biggs. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for your comments. That wraps it up for this episode of the Bogota Writers Group podcast. If you've liked what you've heard and want to read more, you can check out our collection of short stories, Voices of Bogota, which is now in its second printing. It's available on Amazon. Or if you want to just learn more about us, be sure to look us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and post your comments or questions. My name is Delaney Turner. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks. You're listening to the Bogota Writers Group podcast.